Hello and welcome to our Treasury cast on last week's developments in cash and treasury management. This week we're joined by Steve Evans, Finance Director of Vesper Technologies, one of those small companies that have got a specialist function in the business. They are UK-based IT infrastructure specialists focusing on assisting international businesses with sophisticated data centers and cloud computing. They provide consulting and design to actually get the stuff in place and they have customers around the world and trade in the US, Asia and Europe so they're well experienced with difficult places like Brazil. So Graham, what was your your first most important development this week? The piece that really caught my eye was a report, quite a long report in the Wall Street Journal this week on the impact of uh, President Trump's tariffs, threats of tariffs, es uh, escalating trade war, and the effect that's having on a lot of US companies, which in many cases have been building up inventories or offering customers longer payment terms, which is um, having quite an, a detrimental effect on their working capital. And of course, uh, creating quite a lot of uncertainty. No one quite knows uh, how these... Uh, disputes of other countries are going to develop. The threat to impose tariffs on Mexico pretty much came out of the blue a few weeks ago, it took the markets quite by surprise. And then um, just a few weeks later, it was it, it all blown over again. But uh, I am seeing quite a lot of blocks. Tallia, the supply chain finance fintech, they had an, quite an interesting one entitled, What Would a Global Trade War Mean for Your Supply Chain? So are having to confront this question. Right. How about you, Steve? Is it impacting your business? Well, um, good afternoon, guys. Yes, it is. Um, and and it, it causes an, an incredible amount of uh, inconvenience for companies trying to um, ship goods, you know, into the US where there's a Chinese component involved. Um, the, probably the, the, the first thing for companies is, is coming to terms with, with what the tariffs mean in practical terms and, and then adapting to... Um, the, the cost pressures that those tariffs bring along and, and then you know working out where, where actually do those costs end up and, and uh, I think in many instances as, as we'd all, all expect inevitably they end up being met by, by the consumers and, and interestingly Graham I don't know whether you saw this there was uh, 600 major American corporations including Walmart, Costco and Target uh, co-signed a, a letter to Trump earlier this week basically uh, in, in no uncertain terms saying that, you know, the, the tariffs will have a detrimental effect on American. That was, that's interesting because actually Costco was one of the uh, companies given as an example in the Wall Street Journal article, obviously a big importer of goods from China and weren't quite sure when the increased tariffs were going to take effect. I believe the article said they were preparing for them to take effect at the beginning of this year. And in fact, it was another four months until May when they actually started hitting. And, and, and I think, I think that, that I think is, is one of the problems that, that the, you have the, the confusion that surrounds the threat. Um, obviously, Trump's um, rhetoric uh, is to a certain extent all about confusion and eliciting a reaction but it's, it's business that inevitably has to pick up the pieces and, and, and deal with the consequences of the steps he takes. And I, and I think, um, 
you know, in, in, in the article uh, you wrote, you, you know, you talk about um, companies having to, to build inventory and being compelled to build inventory. And for a lot of businesses, um, inventory is risk. Um, there's clearly working capital consequences and financing that working capital. But building large amounts of stock invariably comes r with an amount of risk in terms of subsequently disposing of that stock, securing a full price return on the disposal of that st stock. And, and it's extremely disruptive, in incredibly inconvenient. I wonder also if that risk extends to uh, US companies with operations in China. I know the other week, I think it was Ford's Chinese arm was uh, given a hefty fine, supposedly for colluding in a cartel. Yeah, I can believe it. It strikes me that the thing with tariffs is that, that, that they have their most value at the point they're threatened. And once they're implemented, they have a decreasing sort of marginal return because companies adapt their supply chains, they find a way to pass the costs on, and, you know, they adapt and, and, and over time their impact is reduced. And but, but everybody, usually the consumer, is left with the negative consequences of that. Yeah, possibly it's a little, rather worrying that uh, I'm also reading that China's ability to retaliate is fairly restricted as well. The, the other problem for us all is that um, it's, 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 it's a struggle that neither side can win and it's a struggle that neither side can afford to lose. Graham, is there any changing in the way people are financing as a result of Trump's threatened tariffs and so on. As you mentioned, uh, supply chain finance, is, are things changing there? They're keeping more cash on hand, certainly. There's been quite a big increase over the last few years in this sort of dead money that's not really doing anything. But they just need it for um, reserve and um, protection against... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess it's a, it's, it is an opportunity for the trade and supply chain finance guys because it's creating additional demand at, the, at the, this pinch point. And, uh, you, know, I hope, you know, I guess those guys, to a certain extent, see it as an opportunity to, to you know, emphasize the value they can bring. Shall we move on and look at the, for me, one of the most interesting developments over the last week, which is the announcement of the partnership between DNP Bank, the Norwegian and Nordic area bank, which also has operations worldwide, and the partnership with Treasury Express, a TMS provider, but of a particular type who have automated the installation of the TMS and so on, and made it all pretty seamless. And they are com combining together so that each of the corporate clients will have a Treasury Express functionality available to them for the first, so for the first time ever. Lots of banks have tried this, but not, none have really achieved it. All the corporate clients will have a significant TMS for them to use, which makes it easier for the bank to um, sell other things because they know the level of sophistication of the systems they've got. My question for you, though, Steve, is does this make a difference if you had a bank that really provided a full treasury management system, which you could use at a level level of you wanted, 
to suit your business model. Would this be useful? I'm not deeply familiar with the Treasury Express product, but I think the, the, what excites me about this situation is that my view is that banks have typically lagged. You know, I think there's certain instances where they're catching up, but they've lagged the, the, the broader changes in, in software development and software solution provision because they've had such a closed shop and, and felt historically they had to develop those solutions in-house or, or for them to appear to be siloed within their organizations. And I think a situation where a bank is coming to its customers and saying, look, we, we have formed a collaboration with the best of breed software provider and we're gonna make that available to you, I think is very welcome um, and, and refreshing. Uh, and I think, uh, I think from my perspective, it's the functionality I'm interested in and it's the ease of use and the convenience and, and the benefit it, it adds to my business. If, if that, I, I'm not really that bothered whether, whether the bank uh, formed a, a partnership with somebody else or, or, or introduces their own product to me. So I, I think it's really positive and, and exciting. Graham, you went to the um, Kyriba uh conference recently which we'll come to in a bit but was there any mention of cooperating with banks there um quite a little bit i think the main focus was kyriba moving out of just a treasury management system provider into these new areas there was a lot of stress on the, the four pillars of kyriba which are treasury management risk management working capital and payments and uh, obviously you've seen this expansion uh, earlier this year with the um, acquisition of fire apps. And how did people react to this, this growing importance of the TMS? Are they resisting it or, or do you feel that they are um, welcoming it? Uh, I think they're obviously just the figures alone uh, show that they're committing to it. There's some huge figures. Um, I think global spending on digital transformation this year is estimated at uh, 1.2 trillion dollars. That's not billion trillion. 1.2 trillion. Uh, on what? On digital transformation projects. What does that mean? Well, I think uh, <clears throat> you know, moving over to these new systems. And uh, they're forecasting 15 to 20% annual growth over the next few years as well. Wow. I, th I, th I, think, I think there's a number of, that there are signs that um, banks are realizing that, that FinTech is a huge opportunity for them as well as a, a threat. And if they, you know, I, I personally think there will be more, the banks will become more active in acquiring um, fintech uh, organizations and, and i think um i think you've hit the nail on the head there steve yes the message was very much that banks are realizing that they can't do this by themselves they just haven't got the capabilities to develop it in-house so it is through collaboration and or acquisition well i think it's that perfect m a situation where the, the acquisition both uh, nullifies a potential threat and you know enhances the acquiring organization so i i i i think there are probably numerous uh you know, maturing fintech organisations that it, that in due course I think will be acquired by traditional legacy financial services in, uh, companies. Yeah, and we're starting to see that in the UK and all all over the place. My question really keeps coming back to how reliable do you think they're going to be? I mean, because the treasury profession is traditionally very conservative. I, I think, Jack, I think they'll be driven. They'll be driven to accept those risks. 
And I think Treasury will have to make the expenditure because I keep hearing this message that all the time they're being asked to do more with uh, less, you know, few resources. Treasury teams don't seem on the whole to be that well staffed either. It's uh, No, and they're they're getting rid of them. I mean, we we did an article some time back about the crisis in Treasury, which is coming, which is that they're going to have so little staff that they won't actually be able to pick up the obvious errors because everything's automated. This morning, I heard a very senior assistant treasurer has been let go. And it's all part of a general trend to thinking they can automate everything. It worries me enormously. Well, we do get, keep hearing this message that uh, automation is going to free up uh, treasurers from the more mundane tasks so they can move on to more value-added work. But I'm not sure that, that I entirely spoil that. When I think, no, I think, it, I think uh, you know, uh, over the years I've heard so, so many uh, waves of uh, new sunrise technologies and, and approaches to technology that have uh, promised to change our lives. Um, you know, I always could come back to the paperless office one, which you know I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the paperless office has quite come yet. But I, I think automation is going to change the workplace. It's going to tre- change treasury functions. But but I think the jury's out for me on on uh, whether that will uh, you know eliminate the treasury function <laughs> altogether. It's rather like these forecasts about the demise of spreadsheets and you know, how they're outmoded and haven't got a future, but they seem to linger on. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, I think people will take the best of these. Uh, I, I think I think people will take the best that the new automation and AI and robotics technologies offer, and and uh, you know hopefully they'll take the best and leave leave the worst behind. I hope you're right. Um, <laughs> Shall we, shall we move on and look at something that you wrote about, uh, Graham, which is the African Development Bank stepping up their digital financial inclusion drive. This, this is a program that's been going for years in many ways, isn't it? Yes, this seems to be the latest stage. Tell us what the program is to start with. Yeah, it's for the financial inclusion across the continent. I mean, as you say, this initiative has been going for some years. I remember hearing a lot about it at Cybos almost five years ago in 2014. So this is the latest stage. Uh, a total of £400 million being allocated, which sounds a lot, but uh, possibly is, <laughs> is a drop in the ocean. The aim is for um, 320 million more Africans to gain access to digital finance. And uh, the figure at the moment, uh, still uh, 43% of adults in Africa have a bank account. So it's so uh, the aim is to uh, accelerate this uh, trend towards greater financial inclusion. But even in developed economies, in places like the UK, it's uh, the number of people with bank accounts isn't 100%, even with in adults. Yeah, yeah, even now. I hear very much that the demographics do favour Africa. You know, it's got these young, growing populations, whereas uh, perhaps in the West, it's uh, more elderly populations. Yeah, and I think um, I, I think sometimes it's a surprise how um, you know how uh, how how large some of those economies are, how quickly they're growing, how they have many of the key components that are going to sustain that growth. 
and and I think um, I think uh, I think the world is going to wake up. I think to to the opportunities there. Yeah, the another article which which we did this week is on um, saying contactless technology is a waste of time. You know the where you go into a shop and you just put your card near the reader and it just reads it. Um, Chris Skinner, a uh, famous uh, analyst, he says that's a waste of time because now what we're getting is the new technology where instead of having contactless, you just have a wallet and most, an awful lot of people have got mobile phones these days and they're really quite cheap. All you need is to receive a payment is a piece of paper with a QR code on those funny squiggle things that contain huge amounts of information. And there are beggars in China and India who actually just have a piece of paper and you can pay them a donation through this um, QR code and the wallet system takes it and delivers it to their account. Admittedly, the person has to have an account, but the technology, other technology, doesn't have to be as expensive as normal. I think that's going to change things too. The, 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 the movement to uh, contactless um, payments just seems to be unstoppable. Um, I, I, I read something recently that said, uh, the, the the you know the the usage of contactless payment methods in China is just like so far ahead of the UK. It's 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 incredible. But you know China's becoming in in many ways a cashless economy, and, and I think the UK will will as well in due course. Yeah, that's also the case, isn't it? Very much in Scandinavia and Australia. I've been reading forecasts that they, you know within a hand, few more years they'll be pretty much uh, cash free as well. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are now warning signs and even the UK government has started and the Swedish government has started to say, look, you can't be totally cashless because then there is quite literally no backup and a whole, whole range of other difficulties that are caused by not having cash as the ultimate backup. Yeah, but I think the, if you look at the changes on, certainly on UK high streets with the, you know, the, the, the significant reduction in, in branches uh, you look at the significant move away from rural areas for, for, for physical bank presences um, you know it, it, cash is almost under threat <laughs> as much as but it is but it, it, it and that's the issue is is if we get rid of it completely how are we going to survive if there is I don't know power cut or whatever yeah no if, if the mo well when the mobile network goes down yeah, I mean, well, what was it? Uh, one of the networks went down, and people couldn't get home. Yeah, no, there was uh, there, there was incredible disruption that, that nobody had really foreseen. Uh, the the fact that you know road signs were dependent upon the mobile network and and stuff like that. So I I I, I think uh, cash is is an endangered species, and I think it's under threat. I think governments are going to have to be more active if they, they want to stop it continuing to, to, to disappear as a, a mainstream payment method. Do you think, Steve, that uh, digital and virtual currencies like Bitcoin, there was a lot of interest in them two or three years ago, but uh, that seems to have dissipated. Have they had their day or is there a future for them? I, I think I don't think they're going away. Um, I think the, the issue is at what point do they make a breakthrough into the mainstream? 
Well, I think that breakthrough might be coming sooner than you think because Facebook are about to announce in the next two or three months their digital coin, cyber coin solution. And when you get something that is as big as Facebook is, how many billion have they got? Eight billion or yes. something members? Yeah, yeah, I, I think the, uh, the the cyber currencies have been around for a while now, and I think they they, they continue they, they continue to you know develop, and uh, there's a plethora of different currencies now that have been around for a while. I, I think they're going to they're going to I think there's even now you know investment funds that you can you can uh, invest in that will invest purely in, in cyber currency. I, I think they're going to continue to be there. The question for me is, at what point do they make a breakthrough into mainstream commercial life and then mainstream consumer life? I, I, I don't see that yet. Possibly when the volatility comes, I'm not a bit, um, there's been a bit of a boom and bust in the price. In oh, the and, and the, the amount of, um, uh, of these um, uh, suppliers suddenly being hacked and losing 14 million or something US dollars is just, it's not going to get a lot of confidence. Actually, I, it, I think the breakthrough could come, as, as you mentioned, Jack, with Facebook, with those, uh, you know, familiar household names endorsing these technologies. You know, I'm, I'm mindful of, um, I think I read recently that Apple's credit card product will launch in the UK in, in, in autumn of this year. And I think you know those non-traditional financial service organisations could be the way that these these new new uh, new currencies and new methods of transa transacting can break through. But they're having to partner with, for example, in Apple's case, with a, a very prestigious bank, Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Can we change the subject? The I did a piece on foreign exchange trading systems, and. I asked 360T what were their three recent development of their recent developments over the last 12 months, and they talked about three things: algo-based trading. They're now covering that, which is not a surprise. But what really surprised me was their execution management system, where they're now linking it, their 360T FX trading system, direct to the treasury management system and to the banks, and in some cases. They are disappearing. They're just an API now, so there is no visual recognition of 360T being there. They're just an API that delivers the different messages to and from the banks and the other parties. Steve, would you, because you do obviously do quite a bit of foreign exchange with your type of operation, do you see this sort of thing being useful to yourself or is it just you're too small for this? Well, I think I, probably in general terms, I think um, I, I would encourage all, you know, if I had the, the chance, I'd encourage all, you know, mainstream financial system providers to be open-minded and, and uh, stop thinking about software applications and the provision of, of service via software application as, as, a, as a siloed, closed book. For me, this amalgamation, this collaboration, this interoperability of different software systems, you know, carries risks, but ultimately can only be good for, for the customer. So you're not worried about it? I, it doesn't worry me, no, because I, 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 I'm, I, perhaps I'm, I'm less focused on the risk or the, um, 
you know, the compliance aspects of it that the financial organizations have. But at face value, getting best of breed software and getting outcomes and functionality that, 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 that really help me, I, I'm, I'm receptive. Graham, did you, when you, in, if we move on to your um, attendance at the Kyriba meeting, where I think there were, is it a couple of hundred people there at the UK users? It was a 200, 200 to 250 present, yes. Right, and they were just hearing about Kyriba's latest message and so on. Was there any flavour of support for this sort of view that Steve's putting forward? Certainly, but. Uh, that was the message being preached. I think uh, the central message this year was um, the move is now, we're moving on from digital transformation to digital financial transformation. And uh, this is being forced on Treasury as it's having to do more with less. And they also reckon that uh, access to cash and working capital is going to be increasingly going to be tough over the next few years. What, what does that mean exactly? Well, for Kyriba's viewpoint is that uh, digital transformation is now absolutely critical. They need to provide the solutions. So hence, it's moving out from just being a treasury management software provider to uh, these new areas like risk management, working capital and payments. And the um, providing more risk management software like the fire apps facilities which enable Kariba to do more now, doesn't it? Well, the message is that having all these services under one roof in future. So Kariba being more of a one-stop shop, I suppose. Everybody dreams of that. <laughs> well, certainly it's got its, um, itself uh, a big investor with Bridgepoint. That there was this $1.2 billion deal in late March with the Bridgepoint now uh, having a, a major, a majority shareholding in Kyriba and uh, giving them a $160 million funding round for, for future growth. It's, it's impressive what Kyriba are doing. They are winning an awful lot of deals. Is it just because they've become a one-stop shop? They're, they're doing more than that though, aren't they? They're combining it with all sorts of other things. They've um, had a number of deals this year, haven't they, with, uh, I think, T and JP Morgan. Their APIs. I, I detect that, you know, financial institutions are becoming more uh, receptive to the idea of, of uh, you know, opening their, their infrastructures up to, to, to non-in-house participants and, and you know, I think uh, we, we detect that from, you know, some of the customers we work with, that the, the banks are looking at, at IT solutions outside their traditional in-house departments. Uh, and and uh, I welcome it. I think, I think, I think it, 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 it's got to be good because that the innovation inevitably is going to come from these startups and these fintechs and the, you know, the, 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 the companies that the venture capital guys are backing, it, it's not going to come from within the, in the financial institutions for the most part. One thing that was noted this year was at this year's Caribra event was uh, previous years there's been a lot of focus on blockchain technology and it hardly got a mention this year. It was very much um, artificial intelligence, robotics and uh, analytics. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I think 
to a certain extent, blockchain fits under the, the heading of the cr cryptocurrencies. It, it, it's not going away, but when and where and how does it make its breakthrough into the mainstream? The message I was getting is perhaps very specific applications. It's not a, a, you know, a solution that uh, addresses anything and everything, certainly. As, as in specific between major corporates that, that, that are geared up for it or uh, partners in alliances or who, who, is, who, is, who is it, who is progressing that? I think it's very much alliances, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I mean, so, for example, the uh, Visa's are setting up a high-value payment system separate from their card network, and this is based on blockchain. Yeah, yeah. We're running out of time, guys. Thank you very much. This has been really interesting and useful. And thanks, everyone, and we'll be with you again late afternoon next Friday. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. Thanks. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye.